Well, good morning. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Happy Fourth and celebration today. Uh, I invite you to open up your Bibles. We're actually going to uh, read from the screen this morning, but if you want to look at the text, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. We're on a journey this summer just looking at the Beatitudes, uh, looking at what Jesus calls his eightfold path, his announcement. And we've been practicing reading through this text out loud together. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And I'm going to read the first paragraph. And then after we hear he said, I invite all of you to read along with me out loud. Okay? Make sense? Here we go. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. You may be seated. Oftentimes, I I look for spiritual practices, disciplines that keep me centered and rooted in reality. And one of my favorite teachers is a man by the name of Richard Rohr. And Richard Rohr has a beautiful spiritual practice in which he says this. Basically, the journey of life comes down to this. It's how to let go on a daily basis. That's life. And you're, and you're looking at me right now, Shar, because you understand that that really is the journey of life. And the reason why it's a daily practice of letting go so that as you age, you realize it becomes more and more difficult to actually let go of things. But life is ruthless and calls us to let go and invites us to surrender. So it is a pathway of surrender. It's a pathway of letting go. And the reason why we practice letting go so is that, so that as we age and we get to the end of life, it becomes normal to let go. Now imagine that as your posture in life, that you move through life surrendering, 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 realizing that you're not in control of much, if anything. And realizing the way of Jesus, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, they really are about surrender. So much of what Jesus invites us to is to trust, surrender, open up ourselves, release, The things that we love the most, the people that we love the most in life, we lay them into the loving care of God's hands because we cannot control people, places, or things. We can barely control ourselves, but we can control nothing outside of ourselves instead of how we respond to things. 
We just read through Jesus' Beatitudes. This set of teachings is embedded in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion, when I look at Matthew 5 through 7, is all of these teachings of Jesus in which he gives us a glimpse of what it means to be a human being. This is what it actually looks like to be human. You want to come alive? You want to like step into the ultimate view of reality? Here's how you do it. Here's practices that get you to that place of surrender and opening yourselves up to the way of Jesus. And then in these uh, sermons that we see in Matthew 5 through 7, I like to think of them as like mountain peaks. So there's like a series of mountain peaks in which we're invited to climb and, and look at and observe. But the Beatitudes, to me, is the highest peak, and it's the start. Jesus begins his sermon with an eightfold announcement about the government of God. He calls it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, in which he says, this are the things that, these are the kinds of people that are actually going to be the most blessed in my new way of living in this new world that I'm creating. So he's making a proclamation about the coming government of God. He's, he's making a declaration about what it's actually going to look like. And then he says, and these are the people who are going to be most satisfied, they're gonna resonate deeply with what I'm about. And as a side note, whenever you see the term kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God in the scriptures, go ahead and put in its place the reign of God. Or I might even say you could put in there the culture of God. And if you think about the culture of God, you might think of it as this is how People who are following God's way in the world um, uh, organize themselves. They live according to a certain way of life. There's certain behaviors that mark someone who's coming under the authority of Jesus. There's certain beliefs. There's symbols that we all agree are important in the government of God, things that we rally around. And this culture is passed on from generation to generation, and before you know it, we actually start doing things without even thinking about it because it comes like second nature. Now, a couple of observations about the Beatitudes, these eight folds of, of announcements that Jesus makes. Notice that he's not dictating or commanding anything. He's simply announcing and observing. It's an announcement. This is not about creating some kind of a program where I instruct you how to be poor in spirit. Us Americans love programs. Like, how do I become poor in spirit? How do I become meek? How do I become merciful? He just says, listen, those who are poor in spirit are gonna resonate with what I'm about. Those who are merciful, those who mourn, are really gonna love what I'm about in the world. And the meek, oh my gosh, the meek? Guess what the meek get? The meek get to inherit the entire earth. What does that even mean? I don't know. But it's good, especially if you're meek. And it makes you wonder, well, what, what is Jesus stating here? And he makes these eight grand announcements about the people who are gonna be the happiest and the most fulfilled in his way of life, in his rule and in his reign. Now, while it is true that some people are going to resonate with the teachings of Jesus, there are others who will initially be intimidated by this announcement. Now, are you ready? Here's why I think people will initially be intimidated by these announcements. It's too much change. 
We hate change. We would soon rather die than change. Change is frightening. Change is scary. And when there's too much of it, we don't know what to do with it. Now, I think that a large majority of Americans are in this latter category, me included. Because as I read through these announcements, if we really hear what Jesus is saying and we pay attention to what is in the Sermon on the Mount, those of us who chant, we're number one, we're number one, are not going to resonate with Jesus' message. And I would say if you're not intimidated a little bit by the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular by the Beatitudes, you're not listening. You're not paying attention. As we read through and study the Beatitudes and invite ourselves into the practice of surrender, surrender, I want you to remember who we are. We are not poor, oppressed, peasant Galileans. We are the Romans. Now that's a good message on July 4th, isn't it? There's a practice I'm gonna invite you into today that I think is centered in the practice of surrender, but I refer to it as the practice of decentering. So decenter. What does that practice look like? The practice of decentering as we come to the text. I, as somebody who loves to study the scriptures, when I come to the scriptures, I have got to resist the urge to place myself in the story too quickly. That's my tendency, is to put myself in the story. But as I come to these stories and I read the teachings of Jesus, I've got to come with a great deal of humility and wonder and openness. I need to come like a character in the New Testament, John the Baptist, in which he begins by saying, I must decrease, he must increase. That's a good practice. You might want to incorporate that into your daily prayer. I must decrease, he must increase. There needs to be more of the Jesus way of life. Some other examples in the scriptures that I was thinking about this week, when I look at the Exodus story, I must come to the realization as a reader of the text that I identify more with the Egyptians than I do the Hebrew slaves. Hmm. I must realize that I'm more of a comfortable Babylonian in the grand narrative of God's story in the scripture. And I must realize that I am a Roman citizen who sits up in his villa in the afternoon, drinking his cold beverage, looking over his landscape manicured lawn as I come to the teachings of Jesus. As a student of the scripture, I look at it, I wanna know the context, I wanna understand it, but I also need to have enough humility not to place myself in the story too quickly and to realize that I come to the text with my own biases and my own lens. And we have to be honest enough in ourselves to realize that we have biases, we have vantage points, we all have lenses in which we interpret and read the scripture through. I need to admit, first and foremost, that I am not a Hebrew slave suffering under the power of Egypt. I need to admit that I'm not a conquered Judean who has been uprooted from everything he knows and deported into a a foreign land and living as an exile I've always been on the inside, always. I'm an American citizen. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm grateful to have been born in this country. I did not choose that, but I have been born here. However, I am constantly reminded as I come to the text that I am not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. I was born among winners 
conquerors. And this creates tension inside of me as I read the text because without knowing it and being consciously aware of it, I can come to the Bible and think that it's always talking about me. And I need to be humble about that. One of the most remarkable things about the scripture as a whole, and it really grabs my attention, is that in it we find a narrative told by the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the occupied, and the defeated. That's what it's written from. It's what I would call the bottom-up perspective and not the top-down perspective. One of my mentors and a colleague asked a very provocative question the other day, and I wanna invite you into this because it, uh, misery loves company, so welcome. And he asked this question, and I thought, it's an interesting question. He says, what if, what if the history of colonial America was written by Cherokee Indians and African slaves? Would it be told differently? How would we hear it? Think about that, and then think about the patterns of the Bible. The story of Egypt, for example, is told by who? Slaves. The story of Babylon, Babylon is told by exiles. The story of Rome is told by the occupied, not the people on top. And this got me thinking, like, what happens when Israel, which we find in the scriptures, what happened in those brief moments of history when Israel was at the top of their game and they were in a position of power? What happened during those moments in history? In those cases, the prophets rose up and started to speak against people in power. For example, one of my favorite books in the Bible, and this might be some light reading for you, the book of Amos, and Amos denounces the wives of the Israelite aristocracy. And these were the ones who were the part of the highest part of society. And Amos referred to them as the fat cows of Bashan. When you, when you call a group of people the fat cows of Bashan, it's like game on. What are you trying to communicate? <laughs> Listen to what he says in Amos 4 verse 1. Listen to this, you fat cows of Bashan, now that I have your attention, who are on the mountain of Samaria, you make it hard for the poor. You crush those in need. Away with your God songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river of righteousness, like a never failing stream. These strong words of rebuke were directed at people, at a nation that had found themselves in a position of power. Every story is told from a vantage point Every story is told from a bias. We all have them. And the bias of the Bible is written from the vantage point of the underclass. Keep that in perspective. Actually, yes. Now, here's a question that I keep in the forefront of my mind as I come to the Hebrew Scriptures. What happens when those of us who are on top read ourselves into the story and we don't read ourselves into the story as Egyptians, Babylonians, and Romans? but we read ourselves into the story from the perspective of the Israelites. Here's what can happen, and I want you to hear this. What can happen is that we can get Roman Christianity after Constantine. We can get the American prosperity gospel. And we get the domestication of the scriptures. We make the Bible dance for our amusement. And instead of it transforming us, we like to transform 
it. And it's uncomfortable. This is the uncomfort of stepping into the story. I encourage us, myself included, to keep the narrative centered in the kingdom of God, the culture of God. I encourage us to keep our politics and our political discussions centered in the kingdom of God. Asking ourselves the questions, what is God for? Where would Jesus be standing in this situation? Where do we find Christ in the midst of all of this? Because when Jesus would emphasize the revolutionary character of God's reign, also known as the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, interchangeable terms, he would say, the last will be first and the first will be last, which brings up a question. How does Jesus' first last aphorism strike you? How does it, what does it create in you? Now, to be honest and to be open and candid with you, as someone who identifies as more of a comfortable Roman sitting in his beautiful villa over in Columbia City overlooking my landscape yard and on my back deck, this makes me uncomfortable. The tension rises up. Now, imagine this with me. A powerful, charismatic figure rises up in our context here in Seattle. And this powerful, charismatic individual shows up in our part of the world and he's attracting large groups of all kinds of people and they're drawn to them. And he keeps making this proclamation. There's a new way of life that is now being orchestrated in the world. And the world itself is coming under a new government, a new king, a new way of living. And I'm about to put it into action where those in the bottom will actually be on the top and those are top on the top are going to have their lives completely restructured. I don't want my life restructured. I like my life the way that it is because I have control and I like where I'm positioned in this world. Now I can imagine that those on, on the bottom would hear this announcement and go, where do I sign up? And when do I get on board? And those of us on top, well, us comfortable Roman citizens might say, hold, hold on a second. I'm not really sure I'm ready to have my life restructured quite yet. Can you give me some time? Can we negotiate this a little bit more? Think about this with me for a moment. Jesus makes a public proclamation about a kingdom coming into an already established kingdom. And he says the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Note in the text, it says that Jesus was born during the time of King Herod. That tells you something. The text is trying to tell us something. Jesus was born into a situation where there was already an established kingdom that was working for a lot of people, but it was also not working for lots of people. And Jesus comes in and makes this announcement and says, the kingdom of heaven is here upon us. And I think what this message of God's reign and the culture of God is centered in, where it is rooted, is right in the Beatitudes. And Jesus says, the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, those who mourn, those who are persecuted, those who appear to be last are actually first in my kingdom. They are gonna dig what I have to say. But those of you who are on top, you might hear this message and go, I'm very intimidated by that. How would that have been received? Well, it all depends on who's hearing it, right? and how you're hearing it. If you were a poor Galilean farmer, a fisherman, a street vendor, you might hear that as good news. You might actually think, now that's good news. 
But me, a Roman, I might hear that and my first reaction would be, hmm, I'm a bit suspicious. One of my professors at Fuller Seminary, my first class at Fuller was by this man named Ian Pitt Watson, this little Scottish man. And he was in his 80s. He was my preaching professor, brilliant, lovely human being. And he said this in our first class. He said, we must realize that I am not a Galilean peasant. I'm a comfortable, secure Roman who sits up in his villa and I've gotta be honest about that. And I'm like, welcome to seminary. And I've gotta be honest about that. And yes, me, well off, privileged in my position, I too can hear the message of Jesus as good news. I get to hear it as good news, but first and foremost, I must admit the radical nature of the kingdom of God before I can even start to participate in it. I must admit what I'm stepping into. I am what many would consider in our world to be a wealthy white American male. I'm 52, I'm educated, I'm in a position, and I'm not ashamed of the position that I'm in. However, it does mean that I have to work really hard at reading the Bible. I have to work really hard from my vantage point and realize that I come with my biases and I come with a certain already pre-described idea of what I think the text is about. I was given a head start in many ways because of who I am and I must realize that. And what I've come to see over the years is to see myself basically aligned with Pharaoh, with Nebuchadnezzar and with Caesar. And I've got to be honest about that. I have to first admit, be honest, open, have enough humility to admit that, to own up, because it, it takes a, a great deal of humility to name what is true. So I decenter myself. That's the practice I'm inviting you into as you decenter yourself and as you let go, remembering that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if I'm not doing that on a daily basis, I can quickly slip into false humility. I don't think there's anything wrong with being what many would consider a well-off white American male. But Lord, have mercy on my soul. Have mercy on me. I've gotta be full of humility. I've gotta practice radical generosity and I have to be grossly generous because of who I am as a person. And if I read the Bible, if I come to the text with an appropriate perspective and a deep humility, I realize that I am actually Rahab who welcomes newcomers. I, as a pastor who gets up front every week, do not see myself as Elijah calling down fire from heaven. I recognize that I'm actually more like Nebuchadnezzar, who's just on the verge of going insane because he started to believe his own press. And I have to realize that when somebody compliments me and tells me that was a great sermon, inside I'm like, okay, ego, keep it in check, man. Remember who you are, center yourself in Jesus. I must recognize and understand that the Bible is trying to lift up people who are not like me. I must recognize my vantage point, my bias, acknowledge it, decenter myself, root myself in the kingdom of heaven right here on earth, and to inform and shape myself around the Beatitudes. I invite you into the practice of decentering yourself, the daily practice 
of letting go. We're gonna step into a communal practice of doing communion together. And before we step into communion together, we're gonna respond with a song. And during this song, I invite you to sit, sit with the term I'm, I'm decentering, but I also want to practice letting go. Maybe there's something in your life right now where you're saying, I don't know that I have the courage to let go of this. My kids are here from out of town, so I'm fully alive inside, but I also realize that they're gonna leave in a few days. So I feel that tension of joy and misery mixed all inside. You know, that's just called being human, right? But it is hard to let go of people, but that's the practice we get to do on a daily basis. So I'm with you. I'm with you in the centering and decentering. I'm with you in the practice of letting go. So let's step into that together as we surrender into the way of Jesus and as we respond with a song and then we'll take communion together. Mm -hmm.